A warm welcome if you've joined us during worship. My name is Jeremy, one of the pastors here. Uh, just wonderful to be together as God's people, uh, celebrating these truths that we've been singing about. Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We've been doing a little series looking at this chapter. This is, I think, our fifth week looking at this chapter. And today... I want to talk to you about embodying the enemy love of Christ. Embodying the enemy love of Christ. If you were with us at all over the last few weeks, you'll have seen that this chapter describes the way the mercy of God transforms us. The first week or so we looked at, we looked at the idea that because Christ has served us with his own life, because he's poured out his mercy on us, So we have a posture of wanting to serve him, of pouring out our lives as a living sacrifice to Christ, and also to serve each other. That's we talked about the body of Christ. Then two weeks ago, we looked at being a community formed in genuine love. We said that the love of Christ has changed us. It means we don't have a kind of superficial, kind of just smiley faces for each other. No, there's a genuine Christ-like love for each other because, we, because that same love has been poured into our hearts and so we love each other. And last week we looked at the idea of reconciliation, of harmony, of being a community where we don't have ongoing grievances. There's not a kind of bitterness under the surface in our relationships. We run quickly towards reconciling with each other Why? Because we are a people who've been reconciled to God, and so we reconcile with each other. So we saw this this pattern of being transformed by the mercy of God, and today I want to show you really what will happen when this people, the church, God's holy people, what will happen when they encounter opposition, encounter persecution, encounter discrimination, You see, Paul goes on to talk in this passage, I'm going to read you in a moment, uh, to describe being persecuted. It doesn't really give the specifics of what that looks like, but maybe it's like in Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about uh, the believers experiencing a kind of public reproach in a sense of being uh, humiliated or or in some way identified as Christians and then mocked or rebuked. Perhaps they're being cast out of their communities, certainly if they're Jewish background believers, that would have happened. This is a book to the Christians in in, in Rome. Only a few years later, after this book is written, do we have Tacitus, one of the secular historians of the time, Roman historians of the time, describing how Nero, the Roman emperor, blamed the Christians for a fire that broke out and publicly humiliated, even killed them. So Paul kind of takes for granted persecution. And the question is, when you have this people who are transformed by the mercy of God, who look radically different to how they did before, when they encounter this persecution, this opposition, will their love be proved genuine? Will their love survive that persecution, that opposition? And what you're going to see is Paul has an outrageous call to these, these Christians. He says, love your enemies. Take that same love that is embodied within you, that genuine love, and now take that to those who would persecute you. It's utterly, utterly life-changing. So let me read to you then. I want to read to you from the first couple of verses, and then we'll jump down to verse 14. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then jump down to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Last week, we looked at these same verses and we applied them to our life together, to this becoming a community of harmony and reconciliation inside the church. This week, I want to show you that these verses give us a powerful, radically different ethic to how we approach those who don't share our faith. Not just those who don't share our faith, those who oppose us, our enemies, that this should radically shape how we relate to them. And what you need to see, first of all, is really this is describing, what you need to see is it's taking that same love, the genuine love that needs to embody the community. You know, in, the, in, in, in chapter, in verse nine, it says, let love be genuine. That same love that should shape our relationships together and that should go and bleed outwards. What you need to see is that the love of Christ is never insular. See, the love of Christ is more than just solidarity. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the idea that The church should be a beautiful community which unites different people, different backgrounds, different races around the cross of Christ. And that is beautiful. But the love of Christ is not just mere affinity. It's not just solidarity. In fact, if you think about it, that's not that peculiar. There's lots of communities, lots of subcultures where it's quite normal that you are meant to feel a sense of affinity with those who share your interest in life. You know, or your political movement. Think about the way the communists will describe to the comrade and brother. You know, there's a sense of it's quite normal in life when you've got a movement or an interest to be united together. No, the thing that differentiates Christianity is not their affinity with each other, it's their posture towards others, that they are to love their enemies, to love those outside the community. That is what differentiates the church as a love for the other, a love for the outsider, a love for their enemy. This is the ethic of Christ. In um, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives a really powerful teaching on loving your enemies. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's talking about what the Pharisee said. That's not a biblical principle. We'll come back to that. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Look, he's describing what the, the ethic at the time, the teaching that the Pharisees were giving the Jewish people, which says, love your neighbor, love the people of Israel, and hate your enemy. 
This is not a biblical principle. This is a a bastardization of the biblical principle where they became insular and introverted against actually the call to, to love the sojourner. So they've taken that. And Jesus says, no, it's quite the opposite. Love your enemy. Actually, just pause for a second and just think how radical this idea is. Because loving your, your neighbor, loving your friend and hating your enemy, that's normal, isn't it? The Pharisees are not that unusual. Isn't that exactly how most subcultures, most people in this city operate? Think about the way that this city is a kind of uh, a mass of different tribes of people, different ethnicities or, or different subcultures, and how often there's a culture of kind of mistrust or suspicion going on between those different tribes and subcultures. Actually, there's very little love of enemy in our culture. Or think about the culture wars, the progressives versus the conservatives, those who preach tolerance except for those who are, in their mind, intolerant. Each side slowly simmering with a sense of animosity towards those who have a radically different world view to them. In a world which is crying out for harmony, Christ delivers an ethic, a way of life that is radically different, and many people would say impossible. And yet I want to suggest to you that this, if our love is genuine, if the Romans 12, the, the passage we've been looking at in previous weeks, if this love that we have for each other is genuine, then it will include a love for the outsider. It must bleed outwards. We cannot settle for a kind of twisted, insular version of the real thing. We spoke, forgive me if you weren't here, but we spoke about the idea of this genuine love being like a rich tomato sauce. How the world we live in has a kind of um, superficial understanding of love, which is a kind of, you know, niceness or friendliness or smiling at someone you don't know. But it's not genuine. It's a bit like if you just poured a can of tomatoes in a, in a, in a jar, uh, in a pan and heated it up and said, that's, that's, that's a tomato sauce. You might say, yeah, that, okay, that looks like tomato sauce, but it's not the real thing. No, the real thing is a rich, uh, deep sauce with garlic and onions and perhaps some bacon and all sorts of things. And that is the genuine love of Christ. It's saying if one of the ways you can tell whether you have the genuine love of Christ rather than a kind of superficial or, or, or skin-deep version of the love of Christ is whether you have this love, this posture of benevolence to outsiders. It's like we have received the mercy of God. We kind of have access to this great geyser, this kind of uh, oil. You know, you know when you strike oil and you see the oil just flush? Uh, I'm sure you've all done this, but you know when they strike oil on the TV and, they, and you see the kind of oil... Uh, bursting out of the ground, there's a sense to which we have access to the great mercy of God, that there's a kind of geyser of mercy in our lives, flowing into our lives, and we are to take that mercy and show it to the world. There's nothing normal about this love. You know, in this passage, it talks about uh, not repaying evil for evil. Well, isn't that precisely the natural human thing? When someone hurts you, what do you do? You hurt them. It's, it's second nature. You see it in young children. When someone hits them, they quickly learn to hit back. When someone wrongs you, there's something inside you that cries out for justice and will often be uh, reflected either in your words or your actions. And yet Christ says, no, there's a different way, brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, God's people must look different. Ultimately, this is, this is both possible and beautiful because we are embodying Christ when we love our enemies. 
You know, all the way through this passage, I've been shocked as we've preached through these uh, five weeks looking at Romans 12, how much the call that Paul has for the church is to embody the character of Christ. As, we, as he calls us to serve one another, we embody the servant, Christ who washed the feet of his disciples. As he calls us to a genuine love, a love that is not a kind of superficial love, but a love for what is good and a hatred for what is evil, or a love that is intensely practical, or a love that is uh, zealous, we mirror, we mirror the love of Christ, the, the one who was zealous for his father's glory, the one who, was, who served his disciples. We are imaging and embodying Christ. Or even as we heard that call for reconciliation, we embody the one who pursued reconciliation with us. So too, when we hear this call to love our enemies, we are embodying the person of Christ. Christ is the very epitome of what it looks like to love your enemies. Think about Christ's willingness to go to the cross. The cross itself is one great act of enemy love. Whilst you were enemies of Christ, he died for you. You were once enemies, but he died for you and made you his subjects, made you his brothers, his younger brother, younger sister, made you his friends. I love the cross. I love the way the cross is this beautiful encounter between the love of God and the hatred and enmity within man's heart. As you see Christ on the cross, you see, you see the contrasting reactions. We go back and read it, Mark's gospel or one of the other gospels, you see they're scorning at him. They're mocking him. They're, they're, they're taking tur- they're, they're, they're drawing uh, shots, or not shots, they're, they're, they're casting lots for his clothes. They're mocking him, and yet he is dying for them. He is running into their bitterness, their enmity. He's almost sucking it up onto himself on that moment on the cross. We have a, the cross is an encounter between the radical love of God and the hatred and enmity within the heart of humanity. And what is Christ's response on the cross? Not seeking to justify himself, not seeking to tell them they're wrong and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, because he is. But no, he says, Father, forgive them. He cries out forgiveness for the people who are casting lots on for his clothing. That is the radical enemy love that we see in Christ, and that is our posture. We are to carry the aroma of Christ, to carry that posture of enemy love in every interaction we have in our our lives. So I want to very quickly show you what, or sorry, I want to show you why this map is essential, what this looks like, how it's possible, and then we'll look finally at what this looks like as a community. So why is this enemy love important for us? Why is it important for us? Well, first, because persecution is real and because sin and evil are part of our everyday parts of our lives and we will always have difficult people in our lives. First of all, persecution is real. Christians in the 21st century need to reckon with the reality that we are becoming the other. I don't want to over-dramatize it. There's no, I don't want to suggest for a moment that we're anything like the first century experience as they're being whipped or flogged or beaten or, or brought out and humiliated for their faith in Christ, being killed for their faith in Christ. And that, of course, is the experience of many around the world, not in the UK, thank God, but in many other countries. That is the experience of Christians. We're not denying that. But even in the UK, we have to reckon with the fact that we are, have a growing sense of outsiderness in our culture. Just a few weeks ago, um, 
or months ago perhaps, uh, a, a very prominent Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, apologised for visiting an Orthodox Christian church. He'd gone to visit them and commend their work in um, uh, pandemic care for, care, care for people around the pandemic. But afterwards, there were, there were those who were offended at the fact that he'd visited an Orthodox church that preached a, a biblical sexual ethic that said marriage is between a man and a woman and, and, and that, that, uh, that is the only form or context which God gives for sexual behavior. They, they weren't like a really ridiculously like, um, I don't know, homophobic church or anything like that. Nothing, nothing of the sorts. They were just an orthodox Christian church. But Keir Starmer had to essentially repent of visiting this church to be associated with the Christians because of that sexual ethic that they preached. There's a sense to which Christians will feel increasingly like persona non grata, a sense of kind of slightly, it's a little bit unacceptable. Some of you know this because maybe you are in a workplace and you think, I don't really want to tell people I'm a Christian because I know that inside their head they're thinking bigot, they're thinking homophobe, they're thinking all sorts of things. So we know that we experience some otherness. By the way, it's not just sexuality. We have a radically different sexual ethic on many, many things. And so in a sense, as we rub up against the kind of popular civic religion of our society, which embraces an attitude of tolerance and do what you want as long as you don't hurt someone else, we who say, no, our lives are not our own, that we submit to God in everything, that our bodies are not our own, we are naturally going to rub up against the culture. And then Christians are faced with a question. What will you do when you're persecuted? What will you do when you're othered? Will you, two options, withdraw and become an insular community or will you accommodate and become like the culture? And that is, broadly speaking, the two approaches that, almost, that every church at some level is choosing. Insular, insularity would mean maybe building a kind of Christian subculture and, and doing everything within the church and basically not really having relationships with those who don't follow Christ, except perhaps at work, but it's a kind of superficial one. Or an accommodation would look like becoming like the people around you, slowly changing your teaching and, and becoming and, and shifting to accommodate, to, to become acceptable in the eyes of the world. Now, I think one of these is much better. I think become, if you if faced with the option of those two options, I'd go with insular over accommodation. But there's an even better way. Paul, I think, would call us not to an insularity, a bold proclamation of the truth and holding to the full counsel of God and a a pushing in to our enemies, a love for the outsider that doesn't withdraw but pushes in, even to those who might marginalize us, even to those who might scorn at us. He says, no, you're not going to kind of, um, in a kind of quiet sense, resent the forces of progressive culture that clash with our Christian ideology. No, you're going to love the very people who think you're an idiot. That is the Christian way. That is the Christian way. Love the very people who think you're an idiot, who speak against you as evildoers and accuse you of do, doing evil. You will love them. But it's not just persecution. This is wider than a, than a reality of persecution. This is just the reality that there are difficult people in our lives. You will rub up against different people who will hurt you, who will offend you, who will sin against you in every sphere of your life. I, th- I think about the workplace is an obvious one. Talking to some of you, or, or here is you know, colleagues who take credit for the work that you do, or someone who who has sharp elbows, who's just kind of jostling you out of position, trying to get ahead of you, and and and, and sometimes uh, diminishing your contribution and trumpeting their own contribution, 
or someone who makes it obvious in every meeting that they think very little of your opinion and your contributions and just kind of subtly pulls scorn on any idea or contribution that you make. Or the manager who makes threatening comments towards you, but, uh, but it does it in such a subtle way that it's hard to really pin down what they're doing. One, one person I was uh, speaking to, actually third hand, uh, my wife was speaking to, was talking about how she has colleagues who complain about her and then do a rubbish job and she has to kind of make up for them and do more work. The question is, will you withdraw at that moment? Will you um, passively and perhaps even subtly make your opposition to that person clear, maybe by kind of sighing at their contributions or you know, giving them terse emails backwards in a kind of subtle and almost, almost imperceptible way of showing your distaste, or will you run towards them and love them and bless them? That is the question this passage would challenge us with. Or your family, you may have siblings who, who you know, complain about you all the time, or parents who make ridiculous, unrealistic expectations of you. Will you serve them resentfully? Will you love and honor your parents, or, or will you love and honor your parents? Or housemates, some of you have difficult housemate relationships, and in your mind you've got a list of grievances against them, all the things they've done against you, and, you, and every time they do something, they just kind of, you add that to the list. That's the opposite of what this is describing. No, it says, no, just forgive them. It says, bless them. Find ways to love them. This isn't just about long-term relationships, by the way. This is about every interaction. Think about all the little micro moments of your life when someone frustrates you. You're in a checkout and the person serving you is a bit rude to you. Or maybe you're on the checkout and the customer is rude to you, probably more likely. Or perhaps you're a pregnant woman and you get on the bus and the person who's sitting in the seat that they're meant to give up for you doesn't give it up for you. All sorts of micro moments in your life where people are going to frustrate you. The question is, in that moment, will you display the mercy of Christ? Because in that moment, your actions, you have an opportunity to tell a theological story with your life. To make a statement about who God is and about his mercy in that moment when that person rubs up against you in some way. I think the reason we need to look at this is because this is the area that we're weakest in. When I look at this great grand sweep of Romans 12, we talk about being a community of genuine love, being a community of harmony, being a community that serves one another. I think I see that, or before the pandemic, I certainly saw that, and we're slowly rebuilding that as a church. But this, this is really hard, because we live in a culture of individualism, of passivity towards those who we don't have to love. You know, maybe you think I'm going to be pleasant with my spouse or my, my, you know, whoever, but these people outside my life, I don't really need to love them. I won't love them. It's almost accepted in our culture that you're kind of a little bit rude to be, you know, you see it all the time in London, you know, people being rude to bouncers or, you know, all sorts of different moments where you just think there's no sense of dignity that they are treating that person as a, as a person made in the image of God and giving them honor and dignity as they deserve. And we adapt to it. Jesus, by the way, even recognizes the hardness of this. That's why he says when he gives the teaching in Matthew 5, he says, that if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing then than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying, if you just love the people around you, if you just love your brothers and sisters, some of you are thinking, when, you gave that, when we talked about that, that felt hard enough. Well, I'm afraid it gets even bigger. <laughs> in a sense, the loving the brothers is not the hard part. We're a community. We have an affinity. We have a shared faith in Christ. That's not hard. The hard thing will be loving all the other people around you when they rub up against you in all sorts of ways. This is hard. Jesus accepts it's hard. What Paul is giving us is a hard vision. So what does this look like? What does this mean? What does this mean? 
Really what I think this means is a posture of practical benevolence, of generosity and mercy towards the difficult people and actually that posture that pervades all your interactions. See, in verse 14, this is the verse I think we've got to ground everything on. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, last week we spoke about how this means forgiveness, and we'll touch on that in a moment. That's definitely there. But you've got to hear that this is not just about forgiving people who hurt you. Bless is a proactive, positive thing. It's more than just not hurting people, not just passively withdrawing from them and forgiving them in your heart and ripping up the debt and being done with it. No, this means blessing them. Blessing, it's, 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 it's speaking of a kind of act, attitude of love, but not in a kind of love of a kind of affinity or friendship. This is not saying you need to go around life thinking, how can I be friends with everybody? How can I be friends with the person who serves me in the checkout? How can I be friends with all my neighbors? I'm not arguing for that. No, it's a posture of benevolence, a posture of love in a sense of charity, a love, a love which um, is practical. That is, that is I think, the, the very essence of this passage. You know, when, when, when Paul, when you see this, bless, your, uh, bless those who persecute you, he's almost quoting verbatim what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, which he's speaking about loving your enemies. This blessing people comes out of a posture of love. It means if you are feeling resentful towards the people around you, it's impossible to bless them in this way. So it does mean forgiving them, but it's more than that. It's not just liking them, it's taking the heart of God for them. You know, and did you see in Matthew uh, chapter 5, he, he said, if you do this, you'll be like your father in heaven. I'll read it to you again. For I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's saying, if you take an attitude of blessing your neighbor, of blessing your enemies, of practically serving the people around you, of doing good, even to the people who do bad to you, you are representing the Father. He says, it talks about the Father putting rain and sun and providing for all sorts, everybody. Everybody under the sun is being provided for by the Father in heaven. Some of them oppose him. Some of them are his enemies. Some of them give him scorn and ignore him. And yet the Lord still blesses them with rain and sun and provision and all sorts of different things. In the same way, as you bless, as you practically, as you, I think it starts with the heart, seek, seek the good of those around you, you are representing that same posture of the Father who blesses the unrighteous and the righteous alike. This genuine love is practical. This blessing is both a posture, an attitude, a desire to do good, a desire for good for the people who hurt you, a sense of warmth and and kind of positivity towards them. I, I want your flourishing. It starts with the heart, but it's more than the heart. Biblical love is never just the heart. Biblical love is never just a sentiment. It's always an action. When we talked about that, we said the genuine love of Christ that needs to embody your family, this community, and this, I think this genuine love that should go out to outsiders can never just be words, can never just be a kind of superficial smile at the person around you. That's, I think, why, why this, this truth, this idea, very often has no traction in our lives because we think loving our neighbor or loving our enemies, and we think of the world's understanding of that phrase, which means, I think, smiling at the bus driver. Or you know, being kind of vaguely polite to your neighbour as you go, you know, or, or being kind of not rude to your colleague. But I think the love of Christ 
even this attitude of benevolence that Christ calls us to is much more than just kind of a little bit of friendliness. It's a practical posture of wanting to bless them. Christ's love is never just empty words. I think one of these things it includes is generosity. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. It says, in some sense, you have a special responsibility to the community, to your brothers and sisters here. These people are like your family, and just like you might have a responsibility, if your brother's suffering, you think, I want to step in and help him. You have a responsibility to your family, but that blessing must go beyond the family. That blessing must go to all people. And it's not like you have to run around thinking, have I served the needs of all people in my city or anything like that, but it's like... It's like the cup overflows. It's like blessing is being poured out in the church and it overflows to those around us in a kind of, almost in a kind of non-structured way, just, just seeking to bless the people around us, whether that be your neighbours, whether that be your colleagues, whether that be people you interact with, you know, whoever, seeking to bless them. Just, you know, think about when the father welcomes the son in, the prodigal son. The son has been away from him. He's rejected him. And the son welcomes him back in. He provides a meal meal for him. But he doesn't just provide the meal for him. There's a lavish celebration. The servants are included. Perhaps the neighbors are invited. There's a sense of the father's abundant, prodigious blessing being poured out outside on just those who call him father. This isn't just financial. This is more than that. Remember that, that actually probably most people's needs are not only financial. It's, 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 think about the lonely neighbor who no one ever speaks to. Think about the colleague everybody doesn't like. It's about pushing into those people. I think that's why Paul talks about hospitality in the passage just above this one. Because as you invite people into your lives, as you get to know them, you see the needs that you can serve and bless. This requires forgiveness. This requires a posture of mercy. But it doesn't stop there. It goes beyond simply forgiving them. Actually, it's, it's, it speaks of a kind of forgiveness of, of kind of ripping up the debt that someone owes you in all sorts of little ways. Micro-forgiveness through your life every time someone offends you. But it then means running precisely in the opposite direction. Someone mocks your faith, you find time to sit down with them and understand their worldview and listen to them and show them honour and affection, the honour that they didn't show you. Someone who's snarky towards you and a bit rude, you find a way to show them kindness. Now, that is weird. You know, say one of your colleagues is a bit rude to you, the next day you say, look, I just, you know, I don't know, you bring them a chocolate bar or you find some way of showing some kind of affection or you you, you know something they're interested in, so you you send them a link or something, a news article you read that they might might find interesting. At that moment, they're going to think that's weird. And that's the point. If it wasn't weird, it wouldn't be significant. Someone takes credit for your work and you find an opportunity to highlight their contribution. So rather than trying to kind of take one up on them and show that that you've made a contribution, you say, how can I honour and recognise the contribution of this person? Someone ignores you and is a little bit cold with you, you push in with kindness. How is this possible? Well, it's because you've died to self-interest. You're not entering into every relationship now thinking, what can I get? You're instead thinking, how can I bless this person? The Christian has died to self-interest. The Christian is no longer approaching every relationship through a transactional approach, saying, how, you know, who should I be in relationship with that I can get this from them? Or who, you know, that they're just prioritizing those relationships because they serve their needs. No, they're loving others, even those people who can't serve their needs. Why? Because they worship a God who has taken care of their interests. They worship a God who's, a, who's the Father who provides for them 
who, who in a sense that, you know, when Jesus talks in Matthew 6 about not running after the other th- these uh, things that the pagans run after because you have a heavenly father who knows what you need and will provide it for you. You know your needs are covered and so you can enter into relationship thinking, how can I bless this person? How can I serve their needs? Who can I honor? You know, maybe you're going into a meeting and it'd be so easy to go into a meeting thinking, how can I trumpet my own achievements? Instead, you're going into a meeting thinking, who can I celebrate and lift up and honor? There are a thousand different ways to display this mercy and generosity and love of Christ in every interaction, politeness and kindness with the checkout person that that shows and underscores the dignity and the fact that that person is made in the image of God. Forgiveness to that difficult colleague. When everybody else is mocking them or making fun of them behind their back, you push into that relationship and you don't gossip like everybody else. Or, lo- or t- being long-suffering with a friend who's difficult, where other people would leave them behind. You don't have a litany of people you've, you've re- who've, who've conflicted with you and left them behind. You have a litany of people who you've loved and persevered with. Each time, in every of those interactions, you're displaying the person of Christ in those relationships. As we do that, we will become attractive neighbors and siblings and colleagues. In fact, Paul even suggests this in verse 17. He says, repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul is describing not a kind of people-pleasing to try and make, get, get, make everyone like you. No, actually, there's a sense of, of, of honoring Christ with your actions. As you honor that colleague who's difficult, as you show mercy to your enemies, you are pointing to the beauty of Christ. You are, in a sense, giving glory and acclaim to Christ as you love these people. So you want, you want to be the kind of colleague that people say, what? I don't know what it is about that guy, but there's something different about him, and I want whatever he's got. You want to be, I, I want whatever he's got. Not, I don't know what God that guy worships, but I definitely don't want it, because the way he acts, I don't want anything to do with his God. The way you act can either compel people towards Christ or repel them away from him. And actually, as you show the mercy of Christ, as you display the generosity of Christ in every relationship, you can draw people to him. Isn't that precisely what uh, Peter has in mind when he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. They already accuse you of evil. The first part of the sentence is already done. The second part is up to you now. Will you live such good lives so that they would glorify God on the day that he visits us? So that some might be drawn to Christ. It's even in this passage. He talks about burning coals being heaped on those who oppose you. And there's some sense of judgment in that, and we'll come to that. But there's also a sense that as you show kindness to people, they can't resist it. Like they can be mean to you. Think about someone's persecuting you. If you show them kindness, it becomes an almost intolerable thing for them. Like you're pouring burning hot coals on them. They can't stand it. It's like you can't win them with your arguments, but you can win them with your kindness. If you show kindness to your persecutors, to your oppressors, to your abusers, actually that, is a, that will draw them to you, draw them to Christ. So how is this possible? Because this is, this is massive. This is such a high calling. How can Christians maintain such a countercultural posture? Well, it comes from a conviction about the mercy of God and the wrath of God. The mercy of Christ. The whole of this chapter, everything we've been speaking about over the past five weeks, comes from people who are saturated by the mercy of God. In view of God's mercy. The reason why we can be merciful to those around us is because we have received mercy. We've been forgiven, so we don't look down on difficult people. We say, there go I, but for the grace of God. 
As we see that person who's thinking, like scorning us and ridiculous, think, actually, that is exactly where I would be if Christ had not been working in my life and drawn me to him. So we show, we show people mercy because we are the recipients of mercy, because that mercy is the great basis of our life. So how, how can we not show them mercy? It means we're patient with difficult people because we worship a God who is patient with us. How many times has God forgiven you for the same thing, again and again and again? As you have received patience, so you can be patient with those difficult people in your life. Why? Mercy, you know mercy tastes good. Back to that analogy of a geyser, a kind of big fountain of mercy, it's like you're receiving that mercy and you're just handing out little shot glasses of God's mercy to all the people around you. Every time someone offends you, you say, let me give you a shot of mercy. And you, and, you know, and you know that's a good thing. You know that's the best thing to give because you've tasted it and you know how sweet it tasted. I, I splashed my son's face with water yesterday. He was on my shoulder and uh, in the park and I, I kind of splashed water in his face from a water fountain. And he, he was a bit upset. And he said, he said he was sad. And we've got a forgiven, forgotten rule in our household. So I said, can you forgive me? He said... Forgiven and forgotten. And basically all the way to the train station, he kept reminding me that he'd forgiven me. And, I, that, and that felt wonderful. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you the joy it brings to my heart to know that my son is forgiving me. I think this, I, can, I can live in this. You know that forgiveness tastes good. You know mercy tastes good. And so you want to give it to other people because you want them to taste his mercy. There's mercy of Christ. There's also wrath. There's also judgment See, in this passage, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The reason why Christians can forgive, can show mercy, can show kindness, can show grace to the people who hurt them and persecute them, sometimes grievously, the reason why they can do it is because they know that this life is not the last word. They do not need to judge and, and, and bring, meet out the judgment, their judgment on that person because they know one day judgment is coming. It means that in this life you can kind of leave your debts, uh, you can leave your debts unrecalled. So say, say this person's offended you, they owe you this much, so to speak. This person's offended you, this person's offended you, this person's hurt you. You can, in a sense, you might think, well, I need to settle up. I need to go and br- make, bring, bring amends, so to speak. So I'll go and settle up and get something from that person for what they've done to me. No, actually, you can go, you can die knowing that you have all sorts of debts which people owe you because ultimately the debts of all people one day will come to a reckoning. That as God comes to judge the living and the dead, he will, they will have to give an account for their lives. Actually, we can live allowing, we can kind of show the mercy of Christ because we know that one day a judgment will come and all All things will come into the light. Things that people have done to you will come into the light. You don't need to get a reckoning for that. You don't need to bring your judgment because your judgment is almost always um, not perfect. You don't see the full story. Actually, what you're doing is waiting for the final judgment of God when he knows everything. His perfect judgment is greater than your imperfect judgment. So in that moment when that person hurts you, when when that person does such some horrible grievance against you and you feel very tempted to meet out judgment to bring about justice on that person in that moment you say no a justice is coming that I don't need to bring justice for that this doesn't rule out confrontation what we spoke about last week about if someone sins against you you bring it to them that doesn't rule that out but I think we should probably have less expectation that's going to work with people outside the church because when you confront someone about their sin in the church they're under the same God as you they're willing to to see things and they're willing to be confronted outside they may not 
So the ultimate answer is if that person doesn't see their sin, if that person continues to hurt you, you know that one day judgment is coming and so you do not need to hold on. You do not need to bring about judgment in your own life. This eternal mindset has one other aspect to it. Talk about the prospect of judgment one day. Everything will come into the light. We don't need to judge. But we also speak with a joyful hope. You see, the, the calling that Christ gives us, the calling that Paul is shaping for us and painting for us in this passage is costly. It's costly that time that person hurts you and you don't go and seek revenge. It's costly when you're persecuted and you don't seek to bring about a kind of justice on that person. It, it hurts. It hurts to, to live a self-sacrificial life in serving your, your neighbor and your friend. It's all costly. But the reason why you're willing to pay that cost is because you have an eternal hope that means this life you're okay with, pay, with making a sacrifice because just living a perfectly happy life in this life is not the end goal of your life. You have an eternal hope. And in just a bit earlier in uh, verse 11, sorry, verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Christians can be patient in suffering, in tribulation, in affliction, in, in persecution, because they have a hope that causes them to rejoice. Because you have a hope that causes you to rejoice, you can weather suffering now. You can pay all sorts of sacrifices. You can live in a much smaller house than you want to because you're committed to the mission of God now, because you're not living, seeking to live in a perfectly luxurious home now, because you know that one day you're going to live with Christ for eternity. And so this life is not all about making a fine house with, a, with everything that you want it now. You can make sacrifices. You can pay costs because you have a hope that is the source of great joy. That you can have all things plundered from your life. People can persecute you and hurt you in all sorts of different ways. But you have a treasure that cannot be plundered. And finally, the real how, the real how here is looking to the example of Christ. Look to Christ. Look to the beauty of Christ who, took, who saw evil, who looked evil in the eye and ran to the cross anyway. When you're struggling to turn the other cheek, you can look to the one who didn't just give his cheek, or in fact two cheeks, he gave his whole body for you on the cross. When you're struggling to pray for those who persecute you, you remember the one who cried out for forgiveness for those who were killing him at the time. You remember the king who who saw a whole sea of rebellious subjects and rode out and instead fell on his sword and sacrificed himself so that they could be reconciled to him. It means there will be a judgment one day, but mercy is our current posture. So when we bring this all together, what will it create? What what does this look like? I think what it looks like is is a new nation, a new community where mercy is our anthem. In a sense, this is, you only get half the picture if you see this individually. When you bring this all together, you have a community that is saturated in the mercy of God, that is dwelling on the mercy of God, that is shaped in every way by the mercy of God. That means when people come into our community, they don't just think, oh, I thought that person was just a nice person. Oh, no, actually, there's something different about all these people. There's a power in doing this together, in being the kind of community that welcomes in the difficult people because they, re- they recognize the grace and patience that Christ showed us. This is this can be hit, understood individually, but it calls for a people who are formed and shaped by the mercy of God. There's a, a second century, a guy called Diognetus uh, wrote a, a little gobbet that was kind of one of the first apologetic descriptions of the Christian community. And it's, it's beautiful when he describes it. It says, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. 
They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They, they are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. Isn't that beautiful? In a sense, think about it like this. We're a new tribe, a new community, but our tribal marker is not the same dress, is not the same appearance. No, it's the mercy and grace of Christ that should permeate all our lives. That someone comes in and says, I see what unites that person and that person, and it is that they have both tasted the same geyser, the same fountain of mercy, and that has transformed them. It's made them a beautiful community. It's made them a people who are keen to reconcile with each other and live in harmony. And it has made them a people who show that same mercy and grace in every little interaction with their difficult colleagues, with their neighbors, with the people on the bus who are rude. They show the mercy and grace in every part of their lives. That is the calling for us, brothers and sisters. Will you allow Christ to reshape your vision of what genuine love is? Will you allow him to enlarge your vision of love to see this full picture of what it means to love your enemies, to see that that is part of the genuine love that Christ has poured out into our lives and has now made part of our very being and essence. Will you pray? You know, it's interesting, he talks about being constant in prayer. This this calls us to constantly be going to our knees saying, God, I can't do this. Will you give me the grace to love that difficult person? To bless them, to seek to do good for them. But finally, brothers and sisters, we must come back to the mercy of God. Everything we've talked about for the past five weeks is based on the mercy of God. That we are people who drink deeply from that mercy. If you're finding this hard, just come back to the mercy of God again and drink deeply for the mercy he has for you so that you can let that shape every part of your life. I'm going to pray for the band are going to come up. Why don't you um, just take this opportunity now just to bring to mind any areas that you need to confess and repent of. Maybe you feel, sense the spirit working and showing you things and attitudes. I could give you a litany of the last week of my own life. Moments where you haven't shown the mercy of Christ. Let's take a moment just to be silent before the Lord. To bring that to him. we see the scale of what you're calling us to. We, maybe we don't even see the scale of what you're calling us to, but we see the call here now to love our enemies, to love those who persecute us, to love the difficult people in our lives. Lord, would you come in and reshape our hearts? Would you come in and enlarge our vision of your love? 
to include not just a love for each other here, but a love for the people you put in our lives, that we might display your mercy and glory to those around us, that we might show your beauty in the beauty of our lives. We thank you that you are so beautiful. We thank you that the very essence or one part of your beauty is your mercy. And we want to now just come and receive your mercy, to come and dwell on your mercy, to chew over your mercy. Lord, we thank you that as far as the east is from the west, so far you removed our transgressions from us. We thank you that you have poured out your grace on us and will continue to pour out your grace in our lives until our dying day. We thank you for that grace. We thank you that we don't deserve to be called your sons and daughters, and yet you have made us sons and daughters of the living God. We worship you, Lord. We worship you. Help us to drink that mercy in today. Amen.